we have been in a series of messages from the Gospel of Matthew entitled Christmas According to Matthew. We've looked at a twisted family tree. We've looked at last week a complicated birth. This morning we're looking at a message entitled Unexpected Visitors. Unexpected Visitors. From Matthew chapter 2, I want to read for us verses 1 through 12. Matthew 2 verses 1 through 12. And Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared or when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. In other words, it reappeared to them. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. May God bless his word to us this morning. And so today we're looking at unexpected visitors. And of course, this month, this month as we're looking at Christmas according to Matthew, we're almost pretending as if we had never received Luke's account, as was the case for Matthew's first readers. For our goal is to understand the significance of the coming of Jesus into our world as a baby, the incarnation, from Matthew's perspective and according to Matthew's story, because we want to make sure we don't miss want that we don't miss the point that Matthew was trying to get across to his first readers. Those first readers being Jewish believers in Jesus who are being persecuted by their fellow Jews and maybe even questioning their faith and so forth. And he's reminding them that Jesus was truly their long-awaited Messiah and Savior of the world. And in Matthew chapter 2, he continues his narrative of the birth of Jesus. And it's a story with which we're all familiar. We've all seen pictures like this. If we could bring it up there, Nancy, thank you. Um, and there we go, right? We've all seen pictures like that of the magi, the wise men, the kings coming, right? That's kind of the picture we have in our, in our heads. We're all familiar with the magi, again, sometimes called kings, coming to visit the baby Jesus and the star that led them there. We sing, we three kings of Orient are, and some of us come from traditions that celebrate Three Kings Day, Right. A lot of the Latin countries and others. Right. Usually around January 7th. This year I saw it's on January 6th. In fact, in many places, this is kind of like the real Christmas. And it's the kings who bring gifts to the children, not Santa Claus. 
right? Any, any of you know what I'm talking about, right? Right, you know, right? Actually, my, my sister, it, she's married to a Venezuelan. She teaches Spanish. Her kids got presents on Christmas and on Three Kings Day. Can you imagine? That's okay. We gave our kids gifts on Hanukkah, you know. <laughs> but Matthew 2, Matthew chapter 2, is also a chapter that has been hotly debated by many scholars, especially those who don't want to accept the authority of Scripture. And they want to chalk it up to myth or fable or fantasy. But even for those who believe, it's a chapter that can often be misunderstood and become somewhat confusing as we're trying to figure out, like, what really happened? But as we'll see this morning, Matthew is very detailed and very precise in his accounting of the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And he does so to make a very important point. So I, so I want you to follow with me some of the details of the story this morning. I'm going to share some things that for some of us might get a little complicated, but that's okay. Don't worry, we're going we're gonna to get to the point, okay? But it all is kind of building up this morning because we don't want to miss what Matthew has written for us. And so in verse number one, he starts after Jesus was born. He's giving us the timing. And, but notice he doesn't say specifically when after or how soon after. And, of course, that's been left open to lots of speculation. But what we do know is this, that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great, who most historians say died in 4 B.C., and thus, Jesus' birth was sometime before that, not in the year zero or the year 1 A.D. In fact, we know that the monk who set the calendar, the B.C. A.D. calendar, was off by a few years. He didn't even know about the number zero. So he wouldn't have even started with zero. So after Jesus was born, had to have been in 4 B.C. or earlier. And Matthew goes on because he says, in the days of Herod the king, this Herod was Herod the Great who began to rule over Judea in 41 B.C. And in, listen, in 37 B.C., he was named King of the Jews by the Roman Senate and by the first Caesar Augustus. Herod the Great was known for being loyal to Rome, his great building accomplishments and the heavy taxes he placed on people. He was also ruthless towards anyone who threatened his power or position, even killing his own sons and a wife. Right? How'd you like to be in his family? And thus, it's not at all out of context to think of Herod wanting to kill the baby boys of Bethlehem when he thought that one of them might grow up to take his throne. And Matthew goes on and he says, and wise men, or literally magi, from the east came. And of course, the question then becomes, well, who are these magi and what do we know about them? Well, we do know a few things about them. We know, one, that most likely they came from Persia, that is the re region that today would be Iraq or Iran, and most, most likely from Babylon. We know that they were non-Jews, they were Gentiles, we might even call them pagans, and they were, they were part of a priestly caste who were, who were part of a religion called Zoroastrianism, whose religious practices, and this is what's important, their religious practices included the study of the stars and astrology. We know they were an educated class of people who were also men of wealth. And that they were very much involved in astronomy and thus astrology because, you see, in their day, those two went hand in hand. You didn't separate them. It wasn't like, oh, we're just going to study the stars. No, they, for them, astronomy was astrology and vice versa. 
So in summary, Matthew tells us of a group of well-educated, well-to-do astrologers coming to Judea, specifically Jerusalem, looking for a newborn king based on their understanding, their astrological understandings and interpretations of what had taken place in the heavens. And it has to be admitted that apparently something had taken place. A star had appeared. Some people want to say, oh, nothing happened. Oh, no. No, something happened. And yet at the same time, what had happened had gone completely unnoticed by Herod, his court, the religious leaders, the people of Judea. And yet it had captured the attention of these magi. And here's where a lot of questions arise. Well, what was the star? Is there any data from history and, or astronomy to back up their claim? How was it that it appeared and then, and then almost seemingly disappeared and then reappeared and at one point even seemed to stand still in the heavens? And most importantly was this. How did they know it was a sign regarding the birth of royalty in Judea? How come they didn't go to Rome? How come they didn't go to some other city? How did they know it was a sign that a king had been born in the land of the Jews. So a couple months ago, Kim and I were in the library here um, in um, Shrewsbury, the Monmouth Library, whatever it's called, and just perusing books and pulled a book out called The Star of Bethlehem by Michael Molnar. And I knew I was going to be preaching from the book of Matthew. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what he has to say. Well, Michael Molnar is a former Rutgers University astronomer who gives great credence to Matthew's account. In fact, um, he presented in major astronomy conferences his research and so forth. And um, it's been said that probably his understandings, what he, he has deciphered, is probably the best understanding of all the other people out there who've tried to figure it out. And, and the thing was this, he wasn't writing as a Christian out to try to prove the Bible. In fact, somebody, some people try to knock him. Oh, you just have to prove the Bible. And he's like, no, I'm just, I'm just approaching this as a historian and an astronomer. And he said, we have to understand the way these magi would think and what they had learned and what their studies would have brought them to. And he points out that Matthew's descriptions are very accurate from an astronomical, astrological perspective because the words that Matthew uses to describe the star, which in his day would have included planets and all the things that took place in, in, in the heavens come right out of their writings of the day and the astrology of the day. For instance, when we read in our Bibles that, that they saw his star in the east or something just translated when it rose, Matthew's using a term for a star that's rising on the eastern horizon as the morning star. Matthew uses a very precise word. Or when he writes of the star, that they saw the star again reappearing and then standing still. Matthew's using terms for when a star or a planet seems to like change course and then stand still. We call that today in science retrograde. You don't have to know all that, okay? But the point is this. Matthew is using terms that were very precise, most likely terms that were passed on to him or terms that were known to his readers. Molnar points out that the star wasn't a supernova or a comet or something big like that or else everyone would have seen it, but rather had to have been something that people with the right background would have noticed, those who were paying attention. And it had to have had meaning to these magi. And what we find is that the magi had certain criteria for determining the birth of royalty. When they look at the stars, and they would say, oh, this happened and that happened, and that means royalty. 
One of those criteria was Jupiter rising on the eastern horizon as the morning star or, or passing or the moon passing in front of it. And in this case, these things and more took place in 6 BC. And here's what's interesting, and it kind of ruffles our feathers a little bit because we don't like astrology. And believe me, I'll mention this again, right? We don't want to go down the road of astrology. But in their day, in their day, every zodiac sign represented a nation or a region of the world. And for Judea, the zodiac sign in that region of the world was the zodiac sign of Aries. And here, what happened in April of 6 BC, Jupiter becomes the main star, the morning star in Aries, and, and, and these other things begin to happen, and it begins to signal to them that there was, there was royalty being born in Judea. In fact, Molnar writes that so many things took place at that one time that it would have signaled to them, listen to this, quote, the birth of a divine, immortal, and omnipotent person. Isn't that amazing? The birth of a divine, immortal, and omnipotent person. In fact, he points to April 17th or close to it of 6 BC, noting that for the Magi, the sun, moon, Jupiter, and Saturn, all being in Aries, were, quote, the conditions which perfectly, simultaneously fulfilled the major real, regal or royal principles. And he goes on to say that, that given that these extraordinary astrological conditions happened when the people were hoping for freedom from tyranny and salvation from pagan intrusions, it's evident that the sky on April 17, 6 BC, would have been thought to signal not just the birth of a Judean king, but the anticipated birth of the Messiah. That is, for these magi, you see, they, they weren't Bible scholars, they didn't know God. And yet for them, it was very, very clear that royalty had been born in the land of the Jews. And not just royalty, but a king who was divine. No wonder they went on the journey they took. And then eventually he points out that the star, which was namely Jupiter. And I don't know if any of you read my pastor's devotion about, uh, about three weeks ago. But last month... After reading this book, like, I'm taken up with, like, what's happening in the sky, right? Right? And I've, and I've been. I have an app on my phone. Like, they can show me, like, what's what up, up there. And, and all in one sign, zodiac sign, whatever it was at the time. I don't know if it was Capricorn or whatever. But, but so close together, there was the moon. There was Jupiter shining so bright. And Saturn and Venus. They were all so close together. And I thought to myself, man, like... This is astounding. How often do we see this? No wonder, like, these magi, when they see this stuff happening, they're like, this has to mean something. Of course, we know the planets and the stars don't control our lives. They don't control the world. God does. But to them, it all had meaning. Right? And so here, and, and he points out that, that, that Matthew writes how the star went before them and then stood over, again, this retrograde thing, in Aries on December 19th of that same year. And we know it would have taken them about four months to make the journey because it was the same journey that Ezra and the exiles who returned with him took many years earlier. And so it's quite plausible that they arrived in Jerusalem in that same year, not two years later, when Jesus was about eight months old. And it all makes sense from Matthew's account. Matthew lays it out like very clearly for us. Again, we're not saying that we ought to follow astrology. God forbid anybody should walk away with that message today. 
But what we do see is this, and this is what's been ringing in my heart from the time I read that book and has been studying this. The heavens declare the glory of God. Come on. The heavens declare the glory of God. And God was speaking to these Gentile pagan astrologers in a language that they could understand. It's a picture. You see, it's a picture of God reaching out to people who were far from him, but yet people who had the kind of hearts that would cause them to seek after him. But you know what God says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. As the story goes on, verse 2, the Magi, they make the trip from Persia to Judea. And it's obvious why they first went to Jerusalem. Of course, they, they thought this exceptional birth had to have taken place in Jerusalem, even in Herod's household. Verse 3, we read that Herod is troubled, he's agitated, he's worried, he's upset, and those with him. After all, if these guys were right, this newborn baby was a threat to his reign, to his power, to his dynasty. Verses 4 and 5, we notice how according to what the Magi had told him, he, he seemed to think that, well, this could possibly have to do with the birth of the Messiah. After all, at that time, everyone was like on pins and needles thinking, this could be it. This could be the time when Messiah comes. And so he asked the priests and scribes where the Messiah was to be born, and they answer him correctly, Bethlehem. And Matthew, in verse 6, is very sure to include in his account. Now remember, when the Bible was first written in Greek, there were no punctuation marks. And we have to decide when a quote starts and quote ends and so forth. I believe that they told him, the priests and so forth told him in Bethlehem of Judea, there should be a period there. And then Matthew writes for us, because this is what Matthew does elsewhere. For so it is written by the prophet. And Matthew is making it clear that their answer is coming. And he wants his, from, from Micah 5, and he wants his readers to see that how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah, in this case, the place of his birth. Matthew, excuse me, verses 7 and 8, Herod wants to know all the details from the Magi. He acts as if he's, he wants to go and worship the baby. So he tells him, oh, come back and, and report back to me so I can go see him too. And, of course, the Magi, they didn't know what was in, in Herod's heart. They were naive. They were naive to Herod and his schemes. But, of course, Matthew's readers would have known. Verses 9 through 11, the Magi head towards Bethlehem, and to their great delight, the star, as it were, appears again, goes ahead of them, stops over the place where the baby is. And notice how Matthew writes that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The NIV simply says they were overjoyed. They were flowing with, with joy. And it was then that they offered their gifts, gifts that would have been given to royalty. And they worshiped the baby Jesus. The whole story is told by Matthew. It's very exact, detailed. It's absolutely amazing. And yet we read through it so fast, so quickly. We just make our nice little pictures, right? But I want us to notice here that Matthew sets up some contrasts for us. And the first is this, the contrast, and that is this, that Herod and his people have no clue as to what has taken place. No clue. Whereas the Magi are keenly aware of the birth of the Messiah. 
See, the Magi come into Jerusalem asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, expecting that those who are there are already aware of his birth, that they've already been to see him, that they've already been to worship him, that they are able to tell him where to go. They must have been greatly surprised to realize that neither Herod nor any of the religious leaders nor anyone, for that matter of fact, was, uh, was aware of Jesus' birth. It's a strange contrast to think that these pagan astrologers are aware of the birth of the Messiah of the Jews while the Jews themselves are completely unaware. They must have been wondering, what in the world is going on here? The second contrast is this, that Herod and his people are troubled, whereas the Magi are filled with joy. See, all of this has Herod pretty upset. Rather than celebrating the birth of the one who is to bring salvation and redemption, rather than, 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 than rejoicing over the, over the birth of the one for whom Israel had, had awaited for so many years, Herod is troubled, for he feels threatened. The Magi, on the other hand, they're filled with joy. Here are these men from a foreign land who've had taken this journey, invested much time and effort and finances searching for the baby. They're filled with hope and expectation and reverence. And even before they see the baby face to face, they're rejoicing with great joy. What a contrast. The third contrast is this, that Herod and his people, they never see the child. And eventually, as we'll read, Herod wants to kill the baby. Whereas the Magi find him, they worship him. You see, Herod and the religious leaders make no effort to find him for themselves. They don't say, oh, we want to come with you. Or, you know, or, you know, we'll just follow you. Or we're going to search for him too. They never come before him. They bring him no gifts. They offer him no worship. And yet these Magi, again, these Gentile pagan astrologers, Seek him, find him, bow before him, worship him, and give to him gifts befitting a king. It's quite a contrast. Herod and his cronies offer no worship, and in fact, Herod wants to kill him, whereas a group of foreigners are bowing before the Messiah of the Jews. It all seems so backwards, doesn't it? Just totally backwards. And if we were reading this for the first time, we'd be asking, what in the world is going on? Those who should have been watching and waiting are clueless. Those who should have been seeking him out and finding him and, and worshiping him never come before him and instead are threatened by him. In the meantime, a group of Gentile pagan astrologers are keenly aware of what's happening. Their hearts have been stirred to find him. The Magi are the ones who seek for him, find him, and worship him. Let me just step to the side this morning. Just kind of say, I wonder how many people sit in churches, in religious circles, week after week after week, and they never come to know Jesus for themselves. You know what I mean? There are all kinds of churches. Listen, we can point to this kind of church and that kind of church. It's in our churches, too. They come to our Bible studies. They sit in services like this and whatever, but they never come to know Jesus for themselves. And meanwhile, there's people out in the highways and byways, according to Jesus' parables, right, that he's calling to, and they're the ones who come. They're the ones with the testimonies of having met Jesus face to face. Listen, through all of this, Matthew is making a point 
And he's once again highlighting for his readers what we have called in this series the the Gentile connection. Because if you remember, the four women whom he highlighted in his genealogy, they were all Gentiles either by birth or through marriage. And yet they, each one of them became an integral and important part of Jesus' family line. In spite of the fact that they had once been far from God, he stepped into their lives, redeemed them, blessed them, and used them as vessels through whom the line of the Messiah would continue. And now we have these Gentiles, these Gentile magi, who even in their lostness, as they took note of what was happening in the sky above them, they're stirred in their hearts, and they're the ones who end up seeking out Jesus, coming into his presence and worshiping him. And it's all a foreshadowing, you see, of what is to come through the book of Matthew. It's a theme to which Matthew returns over and over again, for throughout his gospel, Matthew points to Jesus as the as the Messiah of the Jews, but a Messiah who came not only for the Jewish people, but for all people, for all nations, even for pagan astrologers. For Matthew writes in Matthew 12, speaking about Jesus' ministry, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations or to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the gentiles the nations the gentiles will hope matthew 24 14 says this and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations or 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 to all the gentiles and then the end will come matthew 28 many of us know it well the great commission jesus said Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations is how we normally translate it. But it can also be translated. It's the same word. Make disciples of all all Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In fact, it's interesting that it's Matthew who reports how when Jesus was on the cross and he dies and there's the earthquake and all these things happen, that it was a Roman centurion, those who were working with him, his Roman cohorts, his Roman co-workers, who as they saw what was happening, as they saw how Jesus died, these Gentiles, he writes, were filled with awe and said, this was the Son of God. It's interesting. All the religious leaders are there. All the Jewish religious leaders are there. They weren't proclaiming, oh, this was the son of God. It was this lost Roman centurion, probably didn't know a scratch from the Bible. You see, the account of the Magi and the star are not written out of some need to make the story of Jesus' birth more exciting or more fanciful. Luciano, if you'd come, please. But rather, Matthew's point is very, very clear. That yes, Jesus was born as the Messiah of the Jews. He was the one who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies regarding Messiah, but he was born not only for them, but for all people. Aren't you glad for that today? all people. He came for the nations. He came to bring salvation and forgiveness of sin to Jew and Gentile alike. 
Matthew was making it known to his Jewish readers that Jesus came not just for them, not just for one nation, not just for one group of people, but he came for all Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, and the list can go on. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, probably writing Ephesians before Matthew wrote his gospel, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So today on this Mission Sunday, here we are, Mission Sunday, right? In the midst of this Christmas season, as we consider the baby that was born in Bethlehem and celebrate his birth, we're reminded that his coming was and is truly good news for all people, Jew and Gentile alike, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, those who grew up in a religious setting, those who grew up totally non-religious, which obviously there's much more of that happening today in our culture. But Matthew's point is this, that listen, we can all know the forgiveness of sin and the salvation of God. He came for all people. He even came for Gentile pagan astrologers. And so today, there's just two simple calls for us. The first is this, listen, church, we need to commit ourselves as never before in the day and age in which we live. We need to commit ourselves to bringing the good news of Jesus to all people, to all nations. This is not just a side thing. Oh, it's just something we put aside for the third Sunday of the month, you know. I got to throw an extra five bucks in the offering, you know. No, no, no. When we get to our missions convention, I think it's in March, right, right? Right, we make our commitments and so forth. But our hearts throughout the year need to be stirred for the nations. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Christmas, the story of Christmas is a story that's so closely tied to the Great Commission and the work of missions. And God calls us to see a world out there a world of people, the nations, the Gentiles, and Jew and Gentile alike who need to know the forgiveness of God, the grace of, of Christ that can come into their lives and forgive them of, of, of sin. But we are the ones, the children saying, go tell it on a mountain. Go tell it on the mountain, right? That's our call today. But the second thing is this. That we need to realize no matter our background, no matter your background, background, good or bad, no matter where you've come from or what you've done, no matter whether you grew up in church or not, or it, do, it doesn't matter. Jesus came for you. And if he was willing to, to draw these pagan, Gentile pagan astrologers to himself, don't you think he would, he would, he would invite you to come as well? Don't you think he's, he's there just waiting and watching and wanting for you to come. He came for you, and if you put your, if you put your faith in him, you can come to know Jesus for yourself. You can know what it means to have your sins forgiven, to have the hope of eternal life with God forever. 
and to live your life now, the abundant life filled with the Spirit of God and the presence of God in relationship with God as your Heavenly Father. Again, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I love the little saying, close with this, wise men still seek him. Amen? Wise men still, still seek him, but I would add, and when they do, they will find him. Come on, church. Amen? Wise men still seek him, and when they do, they will find him. Because God is not playing hide and seek with us. He's like, here, just, just open up your heart to me, and you will get to know me. I will come into your life and change your life and save you and make you new. Aren't you thankful for Jesus this morning? Aren't you thankful for the grace of God this morning? Listen, I was so excited when I was reading that book. I'm like, yes, the heavens declare the glory of God. We don't get it. We don't understand it. What was happening, all that? All I know is that God called those guys. God spoke to their hearts. God revealed something to them. They came, and they got to see Jesus for themselves. Oh, I want that to be the case in each one of our lives. Hallelujah. Come on, will you bow your heads with me? Worship team, will you come? And right now, church, if you know Jesus, you know Jesus, why don't you just pray a prayer, just committing yourself today, saying, God, I want to be a vessel through whom your message can go to all peoples. God, I want to do my part to bring the good news of Jesus to all those who need to know him. God, use my life. God, here we are. We are your people. We say, use us, oh God. Use us as individuals. Use us as families. Use us as a church. God, to bring the good news of Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection to all nations, to all peoples. Use us, oh God, to be able to speak into the lives of those who are far from you, God. Some that are living right next door to us. Some who are working at the desk next to us, wherever it may be. But use us, oh God. Use us, oh God. Because we believe if you're willing to, to call even these pagan Gentile astrologers, God, you're, 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 you're calling. You're calling men and women left and right. And you will work in some mysterious ways, ways that we don't understand. But God, we know your heart is for all people. As we just continue in prayer, just a moment, if you're here this morning, maybe you've never given your life to God through faith in his son, Jesus. You're here in the sanctuary. Maybe you're online with us. But you say, you know what, today, I know I need to take a step of faith. I, I, I want to get to know Jesus myself. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to take a step of faith and give my life to following him that I might have my sin forgiven, the hope of eternal life, that I might know the salvation of God at work in my life, His presence at work in my life. If that's you this morning, today you say, I want to take a step of faith and put my trust in Jesus. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right now here in this sanctuary? If you're here today for the very first time, you're saying, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. Maybe you're online this morning. You can just begin to pray. You can chat in, use the link there, whatever, to let us know you're reaching out today in faith to Jesus.
Father, you see those who are reaching out to you right now. Some have lifted hands. Maybe some haven't. But God, you know each one's heart. I pray, God, in the name of Jesus, you would come to them by your Holy Spirit, that you would make them new from the inside out, that they would be washed clean from every sin, that they've been given new hope for this life and for the life to come, that they would know the presence of God at work in their lives as never before, that they would be filled with, with, with such great joy, great joy overflowing with joy today because of your work in their life. So we thank you, God. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for calling us to yourself and doing all that's needed to be done that we might know the salvation of our God. Thank you, Lord. Come on, church, would you stand together? Maybe lift your hands, just give him praise, and the worship team is going to lead us this morning, but just thank him this morning. Come on, just stand and just begin to worship him. Thank him for his work in your life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, we thank you, Lord. What a beautiful name what a beautiful name is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name
Hallelujah. Oh, we bless you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Aren't you thankful for Jesus today? Amen. Amen. The wonderful grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, reaching out to us, reaching down to us. No matter where we've been, no matter where we find ourselves, He calls to us, He invites us to come to Him. What a blessing, what a privilege this morning to know Him as our Lord, as our Savior. Amen. Amen. And I just want to say this, if you're here this morning and right, you've reached out to Jesus for the first time, or maybe you just need to know more about, about what it means to follow Jesus, you can take that connection card that you'll drop off on your way out, and you can just mark mark on it. Today I gave my life to Jesus. Just write a note. Someone is going to reach out to you. If you're online with us, just, just reach out to us through that chat, through the link there. Someone will reach out to you. We want to pray with you. We want to help you get to know Jesus, that you can follow him and know the blessing of having him at work in your life. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I trust that you'll be with us here Christmas Eve again, 6 o'clock for a beautiful service. Don't come late. Don't come late, okay? Try to, your best to be on time because it's not going to be a very long service, but it's going to be a beautiful service together as we put Jesus in the center of our Christmas celebrations. Amen? I know we say it all the time, keep Christ in Christmas. One of the ways we do that is by coming to worship Him together with the body of Christ. Amen. So, Father, we thank You today. We thank You for Your Word, for, for the ministry of Your Spirit. We thank You for the kids who ministered to us today. We pray blessing over them. We thank you, God, for your presence here at work in our lives. And I pray that we would just sense your hand of blessing upon us as we go from this place today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. God bless you, church. God bless you.